Hey everybody, this is Alf speaking. Welcome back on the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. Today I have two guests, not one by two. We're doing big things. I've got Jeff Snyder and Steven Van Meter. You don't need any introduction. I'm still going to introduce them. Jeff is the chief strategist of Atlas Financial and Steven Van Meter is a portfolio manager of Atlas Financial. And if you're wondering what the hell is Atlas Financial and you don't know, shame on you, but these guys are going to explain you straight away. Guys, how are you doing and what the heck is Atlas Financial? Please tell us. Thanks, Al. Um, so what is Atlas Financial? They're a registered investment advisory firm. Uh, Jeff and I are both licensed advisors and, and by rule, you have to hang your hat somewhere. And so we choose to uh, hang it at Atlas, uh, which is um, majorly owned by one of my partners, which is a, a really great guy. And uh, we've been working together a long time. And, and what makes Atlas great for Jeff and I is um, we, we get to kind of do what we need to do. Um, and so we're not being told, no, we're not being told you're stupid. We're not being told you can't. We're being told, we're, my partner says, what do you want to do? And let me help you figure out within the regulations and the rules of what you want to do. And that allowed me to create a fully formula-based strategy. It's allowed me to be on YouTube and I'm now bringing Jeff over uh, what it's allowed him to do. And he's kind of in a great position at our firm. He, he has a title that we call promoter under the regulations. And what that allows Jeff to do is be, uh, he doesn't get the same compliance oversight I do, but he also doesn't have, doesn't directly work with clients. And because of that, he has a lot more latitude to do all the research stuff that he wants to do and that we want him to do. So um, think of Atlas as just a place that we hang out that facilitates um, us doing what we're best at doing. Yeah, I think that's that's what was attractive. First of all, uh, meeting Steve uh, quite a while ago and, and, under, and realizing that, geez, you know, we kind of think the same way, which is always an attractive thing when you're sort of out of the mainstream thought as it is when you're trying to really develop a deep dive into understanding how the world really works. And it's not really the way that everybody says, as you guys know, in the financial services industry, most of the financial services industry is set up so that you never, ever stick your neck out for anything. And so talking with Steve, getting to know Steve, I thought, you know, I could actually work with this guy and be able to be myself and do what I think, you know, follow the evidence, follow my, you know, the scientific process toward how I see the world work. And then, you know, have some input into the portfolio strategies or at least how they're being monitored, what they're telling us, you know, ha have an active role in that sense and be able to do it in on my own terms, essentially, which is actually not my own terms anymore. It's it's understanding that Steve and I have a shared perspective that we can both evaluate these things under uh, you know a common framework that we you know we don't have to we don't have to have big debates about what's really going on in the system. We can have sort of disagreements about some of the minor details because we agree on the fundamental properties of how we see the world. And that was what really attracted me to working with Steve is like, hey, we've got the big stuff. We're on the same page there. Now let's go after some of the details. And I think working together by doing that will allow us to even be even better, sort of a synergy and symbiosis. So when I heard the news on Twitter that you guys were teaming up, I was very, very happy. Um, I think you guys are have great complementary skills on the audio front, on the video front, on the research front, you understand the monetary mechanics, you understand the euro dollar market, the bond market, and those are all characteristics that make synergies pop up with you guys, but also you're complementary with each other. I think you're going to develop awesome products and I'm looking forward towards what comes next from Atlas. 
Now I'm going to do this interview on a special format because I have two guys that are extremely good at monetary mechanics, bank lending, bond markets, and all of that. I'm going to go with three provocative sentences, and I want your, your takes on those. The first is that the last labor market report was very strong and that the US economy is pumping on all cylinders and therefore the inversion in the euro dollar market is crap. Jeff, your take on this provocative statement. You mean all the lies and falsehoods you just told? <laughs> was there anything in that statement that was actually true? I thought it was supposed to be provocative here. Wow. <laughs> well, for, let's take the labor market first. I don't even think the most optimistic cheerleaders believe it was strong. I think the narrative from the the uh, soft landing Goldilocks, the Fed is going to engineer just the right amount of, of, of tightening. Even from that camp, they're saying, well, yeah, the labor market has slowed down a little bit. Uh, the idea was sort of like in 2018, Mario Draghi's idea, uh, Mario Draghi's narrative that, hey, Europe isn't going into recession. It's just slowing down from a really hot start. And that's kind of the idea uh, in, in America, certainly, and so to a certain extent around the rest of the world, too, conflating CPIs with a red hot economy. And therefore, the labor market that was actually still struggling to recover from 2020 kind of looked like if you look on it on a per month basis, that maybe it was kind of robust. And if it slows down a little bit, that might not be a bad thing because as the Fed is trying to do, get everybody to believe in the Phillips curve yet again, it sounds like that some of this consumer price acceleration that we've uh, experienced over the last year must be related to the labor market being so tight and so strong, the labor shortage, great resignation, all this other stuff. So the idea that the labor market is truly robust, I, I think even the optimists are saying that, yeah, it was, and now it's slowed down a little bit. And then you pull apart the rest of the labor data, which was, I mean, even from wages and an earnings perspective, there's definitely slowing going on. And then you look at something like the household survey that has fallen for two of the last three months. It's the largest three-month decline, net decline, since the Great Recession, which kind of gets your attention into into you know, thinking that maybe something else has changed here. At the very best case, the labor market in the U.S. is slowing. But what does slowing mean? From what level and how quickly into what depth? And so it could be that, you know, maybe Jay Powell's right where the labor market's slowing down a little bit, or it could be a recession has already begun. If you take the households, household survey data, as well as some of the details like the labor force shrinking in those two out of three months, there's a very decent chance here that the recession in the United States began around April. So kind of where we are in, in between or in the in between those scenarios, we'll find out over the coming months as data comes in. But as far as markets are going, markets, not just euro dollar futures, but interest rate swaps, the US dollar exchange value, um, the treasury curve, German curves. Uh, we can talk about German interest rates too. There is a very distinct deflationary pulse going throughout the total global monetary fixed income system that are sort of agreeing with the household survey that are saying, yeah, maybe recession is in our future if it hasn't already started. Stephen, give us your take on the euro dollar curve shape, particularly in the labor market in the U.S. Well, the, Alf, the euro dollar curve is uh, just specialty, so I, I'll have to pass that part back to him. But let's talk about the labor market. Yeah. Um, because everything I know about euro dollars, I learned from Jeff. So that would be really pointless because I'd probably explain it wrong. And then well, he'd have to correct me on that later. Um, 
but let's talk about the payroll report because you know the headline number i mean if you look at just headline number as a good report right i mean it beat expectations you know what did we see all over fin twit no recession look at this is the labor market strong and how do we know we know the fed's going to react that way right we know powell's going to come out in a few weeks and say wow this was a great report the labor market's strong so the question and i think jeff kind of posed it is could we actually be in a recession and see strong labor numbers and the answer is actually we can and so this is something actually i covered on my show here recently because it kind of bothered me that i think we actually are back or or, i mean if we're not in a recession we're gosh we're really close to being in one and so this non-farm payroll report bugs me and it bugged me because everyone said that it was it was good and i mean not that it was bad that it means we're not in recession and so when you actually chart the non-farm payroll on a year-over-year rate of change or on just a percentage change, what's really notable is you don't get contractions in the data until either mid or late, sometimes even almost toward the end of the recession. So is the fact, as Jeff mentioned, or we're, we're clearly slowing down. Where, where's, where's the bar? Where's, where's, where are we talking this coming from? It's coming down, but we could be in recession. And then today we get the National Federation of Independent Business Report sentiment. Hey, Jeff knows right where I'm going. He knows yeah. where I'm going. The sentiment is worse than it was at the pandemic lows. And that's fine. Okay, so businesses are saying, hey, we think things are pretty bad, but they're still hiring. They actually said, we're still actively looking to bring on employees. And so what it tells you is, if you're using the non-far labor report as a gauge if we're in a recession or not, it's about that's about as valuable as the fact that the government's going to re- rework those numbers later anyways. So the whole report is worthless, but hey, a lot of people like it. So on the labor market, what I will add on top of it is that revisions from the last two months basically canceled about two thirds of the upside surprise in the non-farm payroll number. So please have a look as well at what happened before the government actually revised the numbers down. Then we are having uh, the supply of labor not coming back online at all. So the longer we wait, the more we should be certain that labor supply comes back because, hey, you know, asset prices are coming down. All these boomers who retired must be coming back to the labor market. We are not seeing any signs of that happening. That's not a good thing because it means there are more people inactive in the overall population. That's not a good thing for the economy. The other thing I'd like to stress out is the euro dollar curve. I mean, that's an interesting one. Between 2023 and 2024, at some point, we went to price all the way up to 100 basis point hikes. And I looked in the past at euro dollar curve slopes between the next six months and 32 months at any point in time in the past over the last 30 years. There has never been such a, an aggressive cut cycle from the Fed priced immediately thereafter a strong hiking cycle. It's the bond market screaming like, dude, if you go all the way up there, I got to respect that because you will set the fixing over the next three months. And if you keep hiking, I'll have to pricing that you are stubborn and you keep hiking. But I'm going to tell you straight away from now that you are going to be cutting very aggressively as soon as you finished hiking. You don't even stop and you already are cutting. That has never been priced over the last 30 years to be such an aggressive cutting cycle. So you got to take some stock, I think, out of the euro dollar market. Jeff, you are, you are really, you really want to say something here. No, and I think that's a great point, Alf. And I think that's the major point that, you know, when we look at the economic data, the market has sort of made up its mind already before the data even shows up. Because as you said, the euro dollar curve is, is never seen it like this before. It's aggressively, aggressively, ultra aggressively 
are hedging against lower rates once the Fed reaches its terminal point. And it's not just lower rates in a couple of years from now. It's immediately. Yeah. It's never been this inverted this quickly. And it's it's just it's when you put that in some sort of mainstream or uh, layperson's language, try to interpret the what's going on in the curve. What it really means is that, you know, the Jay Powell's ultra aggressive, the Fed reaction function, all that stuff is up front. The Fed's going to go as high as it's going to go. But at some point this year, very likely this year, nothing is ever 100 percent. Nothing's ever inevitable. But the curve is preparing and hedging for this year, the Fed, after being so ultra aggressive, stopping rate or stopping its rate hikes, starting to cut them and then cutting them relatively aggressively. And you start to think of yourself, what what does the what does the economy, what does the financial markets look like if if we go from Mr. 1994, I want to be Alan Greenspan and Paul Volcker combined to suddenly Ben Bernanke all over again, QE forever. I mean, what is how do how do we get from one to the other without it looking ultra ugly? I mean, recession is is maybe the best case here. And then you look at other parts of the market, especially uh, other parts of the monetary system, collateral shortages, the some of the stuff that's going on there. And you got the prospects for a really serious recession combined with deflationary, you know, disorderly monetary conditions, and it can get really bad really quick. And I think that accounts for why the euro dollar futures curve, which has been a historically validated tool in every business cycle in which euro dollar futures have been available and traded, to tell you very quickly that yes, there's there's real problems here. Go back to 2006, the euro dollar futures curve inverted, and even then it didn't invert this much. So we're really looking at a historically validated tool that is telling us something highly unusual is being hedged in this market. And this is not just some niche little tiny market. This is the biggest hedging market there is out there. Tens upon tens of trillions of fixed income assets and portfolios that are depending upon this market to hedge all of that risk. And there is an almost certainty that something unusual is going to take place this year. But now I want to get Stephen's take on another uh, provocative sentence I'm going to go out with. Steve, banks are lending big times. That is a signal that the economy is strong, credit is flowing plentiful to the real economy, and banks trust the credit worthiness of the private sector. What's your take? Yeah, and that's in, in a boom time. That's what you want, right? Um, I have an opportunity to invest in a project to make a 10% return. So I can go to the bank and borrow at five or 6%. They're happy. They see the project's going to make a return. They're going to get their money back from in- with interest. Hey, it's a winning deal for everybody. Um, so, but that's interesting because you see different things coming into recession and during inflationary times. So one thing that, that is a huge red flag for me is refinance applications. So when I look at mortgage applications, they are super low. In fact, they're unusually multi-decade lows. And when you see that, it usually tells you interest rates are about to fall. So that's kind of interesting that interest rates here would fall just from that perspective, not factoring you know the euro dollar curve. But what we're seeing is the reason people are borrowing now, um, banks almost have, almost have no choice because they want to get their money back, is consumers can't afford higher prices. So the first thing you do is you go through denial. Well, I'm going to get a raise or I'm going to get a bonus or something's going to change or I'm going to leave my job and go somewhere else and get a higher wage and I'll be able to afford it. So in the meantime, I still need to put food on the table and do these things, put gas in my car. And then at some point, 
you start to see that change where all of a sudden banks are starting to realize they might not get their money back and consumers realize they're not going to be able to afford things. So they start cutting their credit. We're seeing the early stages of that now, right, right now, Alf. Um, but if you look at the year over year comps, as we all know, those are very lagging indicators to what is currently happening. So if we look at certain data points, we say, wow, look, it's booming. Um, but I have a hunch, much like the euro dollar curve is telling us that lending is also going to collapse in the near future as well. Jeff, can you tell us something about lending activity going on in the private sector? Well, there's a couple of things. There's usually, you know, usually see a spike in lending just before recessions too. sort of like everybody. Hey, let's finish it up before everything goes to shit. Let's get all our stuff into the bank. Let's get all our paperwork done because we know things in a couple of months aren't going to be good. And there's also something, you know, in the U.S., uh, you know, the LIBOR switch to SOFR. There was a burst of lending activities. Everybody wanted to get LIBOR pricing while they still can because there's still a whole lot of mistrust and uncertainty about SOFR. So there were some idiosyncrasies there. And then you look at some places like Japan, where obviously there's no bank lending, because why would there be? There's no bank lending there. Um, bank lending in China has fallen precipitously. It's still expanding at 11% rate. I think the new numbers today was 11.2, which is not a good number for China. That's a really low number for China. So by and large, you see the overall credit environment is still being squeezed by deflationary pressures, except for some of these idiosyncrasies like pre-recession spikes in lending, as Steve talked about, especially consumers who are in denial, thinking, well, I'll just charge it on the credit card and hope a couple months from now I won't have to worry about it. Um, there's some, some, some stuff going on in Europe, too. I don't, although I'm not really sure if those are accounting issues with um, how they how they uh, how they account for the way uh, loans are prepackaged and sent over to the ECB or the, the various national central banks. But either way, there's a lot of stuff going on in lending that doesn't say, "Hey, the, the banks have turned the corner here, and now they're going to go back to the way they were in 2000 in the middle 2000s, just sending loans recklessly into the economy." In fact, the, the, I think the majority of the data says it's kind of the opposite. They're still in a constrained balance sheet environment. I want to back up Steve here with an observation he did. Um, when private uh, individuals or corporates actually struggle to maintain purchasing power or refinance, what they do is they go through short-term borrowing. So that's, you know, line of credits, revolving line of credits. And some of this bank lending has also been basically revolving credit lines being topped by corporates because the deals on those were still okay, fixed at, at older conditions. While if you try to borrow for long-term on the credit markets nowadays, both the risk-free rate and the credit spreads have widened. And Stephen also pointed out to mortgage applications, which are plunging exactly for the same reason, because not only risk-free rates, so treasury yields have gone up which are the basis for pricing your mortgage rates, but also MBS spreads have widened as mortgage-backed securities are not bought anymore by the Fed. Um, and that makes your mortgage much more expensive. You won't be accessing credit on a long term. You try to access credit card credit or um, you know, a, a revolving line of credit. So that's the one of the reasons why bank lending is okay in the US, but bank lending is not okay in Europe and it's not okay in China. And I do agree with Jeff as well. Now, this one, I know, Steve, that uh, you have done some work on it. This and also Jeff, actually. So this sentence says that um, now that the Fed will not be doing QE anymore, actually, they'll be doing QT. They will run out of the U.S. government will run out of buyers for U.S. treasuries. Nobody will buy U.S. There is no buyer anymore. 
Well, that would certainly be interesting. <laughs> that was a slow pitch over the center of the plate. <laughs> I, mean, I know. I, I, I'm not even sure I want to swing at it because it's pretty funny. Because you'll miss. <laughs> I mean, I, I might just take a miss on this one just for just yeah. for just to hear what Jeff has to say. Um, but yeah, that's always this. Well, I mean, I've heard that from since I was a kid. You know that no one wants to buy all this debt yet. What we know from Jeff and the collateral shortages, and, and people are shocked, you know, when, when I talk to people, I say, you know, we actually don't have enough debt. They're like, what? Like, yeah, that's that's what a collateral shortage is. Like, if I'm if I'm short cheeseburgers, that means I don't have enough and I need to get more. That means I'm not getting enough from the restaurant. I need more cheeseburgers. So, yeah, we have a collateral shortage. Now, now I will argue that maybe the debt is being issued improperly, that perhaps our former Fed chair, now Treasury Secretary, who for the life of me, I cannot understand this for a moment, why she hasn't figured out that we should be issuing more collateral instead of more notes and bonds. Maybe we should just stop issuing notes and bonds and just purely issue uh, T-bills. But there's absolutely no problem with demand for the bond market. In fact, what do we see during quantitative tightening? We're starting to see rates come back down, which actually suggests that there always was demand. Maybe the Fed just intervened in a market that they didn't need to. Yeah, it's amazing how when you look at some of the uh, some of the bond price, the inverted yield curve, for example, tells you there's all sorts of extra demand for even notes and bonds for the deflationary consequences of everything that we see going on in the front end of the cur- curve. Even today, the four-week Treasury bill at one and a half percent, which is it's been moving up because of rate hikes. That's still five basis points less than RRP, 15 below IOER. And there's a 75 basis point, chances are 75 basis points in two weeks. And the four-week Treasury bill is, cha- is trading at one and a half percent. I mean, there's an enormous demand for short-run bills. And I will disagree with you, Steve, just a tiny little bit here, because Janet Yellen knows that there is a tremendous demand for bills, though I don't think she really understands why. In fact, I'm pretty sure, especially reading through transcripts, she has no idea why there's so much demand for bills, but she knows it's there. They've converted one of their cash management bills into what's going to be a new, what is it, 100 and some odd day a regular issue bill. So they're they're actually adding a regular series to treasury bills because they know, Jesus, our bills are so popular that the market will buy them at almost any price. Now it's just, you, you want them to make the next step, which is to, okay, they're very popular. The market will pay an extraordinary premium for these things. Why would that be? Is it because they love Janet? Because they love Joe Biden? Do they love the, the paper they're printed on when they're actually electronic? Are they going to sell NFTs against treasury bills? Are they collectible issues or something? You know, you would wish that they would just go and look at it and say, treasury bills have a very singular use in particular. Also, all treasury security, but treasury bills are the best of the best of the collateral. And maybe that's the reason why, especially when we look at repo fails, you look at securities lending, you look at all of these pressures across the collateral stream that are obvious and evident. Once you know where to look, it's not hard to put these things together and realize that, you know, as Steve said, it does, it boggles people's mind when you say the Treasury needs to issue more debt. And we're not saying we agree with federal government deficits or the way that they're managing their fiscal affairs. What we're saying is in pure monetary mechanical terms, there is not enough currency and collateral is currency. And it's not just for repo, it's for derivatives, it's for any number of other transactions. And without this collateral, it doesn't get distributed in the right way. It causes enormous monetary problems, which 
I mean, repo fails over the last two weeks of June. So the week of the June 22nd and the week of June 29 were as high as they were since March of 2020. And oh, by the way, what did we see in the second half of June? We saw curves collapse all over the world. We saw sell-offs. We saw commodities crashing, crypto, everything else. We saw a huge global deflationary lack of liquidity. At the same time, we see these collateral indications that tell you there's not enough collateral. And those are just not, those are not random coincidences. So collateral is an enormous problem. As we said before, I think that's one of the biggest problems why the Eurodollar futures curve, the treasury curve, um, German buns, the shots. Have you seen the shots? The shots have dropped about 90 basis points in a matter of three weeks. So the markets globally are saying, oh, we're really worried about something here. And if you want to know what it is they're worried about, it's not just recession, it's shortage of collateral. Yeah. And, and what doesn't make any sense is you'll see a new regulation come out and you look at it. And it doesn't say that it, it says it needs collateral and it doesn't say specifically what, if, I mean, if it said you need to buy T-bills, but if you read all the rules, you might as well just swap all that word out and say, look, you need to buy some T-bills. And yet the response from the treasury is, man, maybe we should cut T-bill insurance and issue some more notes and bonds. It's like, no, 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 no. You should cut notes and bonds. In fact, every time you come out with a new law or new regulation, you should issue more bill because clearly the market wants it. But what do they look at? I mean, and I love this. When they talk about reverse repo, which is clearly a collateral shortage. I mean, that is exactly what it is. And what do you hear out of the Fed? Wow, there's $2 trillion of extra money in people's bank accounts. No, that is not what it is. But I'm like one of these excited kids jumping on the, on the chair because I was looking at the chart that sort of explains, basically visualizes what you guys are saying. If you look at three months or six months T-bills and you look at the yield on offer on those against the yield on offer on OIS swaps, they replicated the Fed funds future pricing basically over the next three to six months. These these T-bills are trading something like 30 to 40 basis point below the amount of money you get by placing money risk-free at the Federal Reserve. So that means that there are actually buyers out there which are grasping for air and grasping for T-bills and collateral, and they're willing to pay a premium up to 30 or 40 basis point. Doesn't look much, but on a very short-term risk-free instrument, basically, that's quite a lot to make sure they can get some hands on some of these T-bills. That is quite impressive. In Germany, as Jeff says, it's even worse. If you look at the shots, because it's one of basically one of the few AAA rated, relatively liquid collateral uh, denominated in euro, the, the, the demand supply imbalance of that collateral is so big that it trades sometimes even 50, 60, 70 basis point through the European Central Bank deposit rate. I mean, holy smokes. And Alf, that's one of the things, as we talked about the euro dollar futures curve being unusual, you didn't see this kind of gaps, uh, this kind of premium on collateral, even during 2008. In some yeah. of the worst parts, excuse me, like in the summer during the, during the lead up to Lehman Brothers, you saw some of these negative spreads, some of these uh, uh, over some of these premiums paid on treasury bills in particular, some of those in Europe, but they were not this bad. It's, it's, you know, I don't want to say that we're redoing or we're running into a new, uh, we're going to go get another 2008 again. What I'm saying is that some of these collateral indications, some of these monetary indications 
are really serious and they're serious in a way that we have not seen since 2000. Again, I don't think we're repeating 2008. You're not going to see bank failures. You're not going to see another Lehman Brothers, but you can have gross systemic illiquidity that can become seriously disruptive on par with something like, like March of 2020, for example. So some of these indications really telling us that things are not good right now in very pure monetary, technical, plumbing uh, types of, of, of really crucial factors that uh, really the world monetary system depends upon. The last sentence I have to get your feedback on is the following. Bank reserves are real economy money. <laughs> you want to do that one, Steve, or you want me to? Well, I mean, I tried to pay once, Jeff once in bank reserves and yeah. for the checkup. So uh, we'll stick you with the narrative that something must be wrong if he didn't want to accept them. Well, that's because I knew you had to have stolen them because only banks are allowed to use bank reserves. So there's no way they can possibly be in real economy. And I, you know, I was talking to uh, Adam Tiger at Wealthy on yesterday. You had a discussion about bank reserves. And I'm like, and I told him, look, this is this shouldn't be news. This shouldn't be controversial because even Paul Volcker knew that bank reserves had no correlation with real economic outcomes, let alone bank credit or bank or uh, depository money. So we've had a half a century gap where people have known, people who at least pay attention, have known that bank reserves bear no outcome in anything other than the technicals of reserve requirements and some statutory stuff, sometimes some liquidity needs, short-run liquidity needs for banks, but bank reserves bear, they have no correlation, no correspondence, no, they, they can't even get out of the banking system because only banks can hold them. So they're not useful money, they're interbank tokens, they are essentially a policy tool. They only tell you what a central bank is doing, not what the system is doing, nor what the economy is doing. And unfortunately, most people associate bank reserves with money, even base money, and therefore they think it's, it's money being printed when, again, you could go back to the 1970s, even the 1960s, and see that the bank reserves were essentially outmoded and outdated back then. So what are they today? They're just useless and inert. A sad story, unfortunately still true today, taught at university that bank reserves can be, I think it's multiplied into money. That is whatever they teach you at, uh, at the university nowadays, while they are only an inert financial form of money that banks can exchange within each other effectively, or anybody else who has a master account at the Fed, which are not many institutions apart from a bank. Anyway, guys, enough nerdiness for today. I want the audience to get the opportunity to listen to more nerdiness, but on any other day of the year, which means I'm asking you, where can people find you guys from now onwards? Well, you can find us on uh, YouTube. Uh, I have my own channel, Stephen Van Meter, and uh, Jeff uh, hangs out with his buddy Emil Kalinowski, who I occasionally, uh, I think once a week, I'm going to join now. This is new, so we're kind of getting everything figured out. And then uh, for those who want to access uh, Jeff's research and my research for a limited time, they can go to marketsinsiderpro.com, sign up, and uh, they'll get an email the next day with uh, Jeff's research, which is phenomenal, and then and mine as well. And then I know Jeff's other places. I, I don't know where, everywhere he's at. But I'll let him fill <laughs> yeah, I haven't, told, I haven't given you all the addresses yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we haven't, we haven't uh, officially got all that uh, paperwork done. 
You can also find everything that I'm doing at Eurodollar University. It's the website is eurodollar.university. As, as Steve just said, uh, our podcast with Emil Kalinowski, which includes Steve. We're now sort of a triumvirate uh, with three-way there. It's also called Eurodollar University. It's available at uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and everything else, as well as YouTube at Emil, Emil Kalinowski's channel. Useless to say that I endorse everything from Steven's YouTube show to the Eurodollar University Jeff is doing from the written research you guys produce, Portfolio Shield from Steven, all really good stuff, especially learning material for people to get an understanding of how bank lending works, the Eurodollar works, how the bond market works, and how Steven, for example, looks at correlations across asset classes. If you want to hear more of these interviews, you can just subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel. That's very easy to do. And... Uh, Thank you guys for being in this interview. It's been fun. Thanks, Alf. Yeah, good to see you, Alf.